listeners welcome to this week in interview happy new year it's our first uh our first show for 2017 i hope that you had a a great holiday season i hope you had a happy christmas happy new year and all the celebration that goes along with the holiday season and that you're ready for 2017 full of new year resolutions and all of that that goes with with the new year, with the welcoming of the new year. Well, I am your host, Anthony Drago. I don't know if we have any new listeners already for the 2017, but we do this every Wednesday night. Every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we have our program called This Week in Interview, where we have conversations with persons of interest. Persons of interest because of their life experience, because of the work that they do, because of the training that they've had. And we have this one, I have the privilege of having wonderful conversations with them. And I get to share those conversations with you on this weekend interview. Tonight is no exception. Tonight I have very interesting guest. He's been on this weekend interview before. You know, we, our last program, our last program was in December. And we took a break for the Christmas and for the New Year. And I was, I was wishing everyone a happy New Year. And also just, you know, just saying that I hope that everybody had a, a wonderful Christmas and New Year season. And that you are well prepared for 2017. And my guest tonight on this speaking interview is Mr. Jones Murphy. Those of you who are long time listeners to TDN Radio and to this speaking interview, You'll be familiar with um, Mr. Murphy Jones. is uh, a son of the Dominican soil. Very accomplished young man. Uh, he made several contributions both in Dominica and on the international scene, particularly in the um, in the field of finance. And uh, he's just released a publication uh, talking about you know the whole interaction between. People of African descent, people of European descent, particularly in the United States, and this is very, very relevant now, considering what just happened to the U.S. If anybody, if anybody can um, get what's happening in the U.S. Uh, and and you try to put it in context, very, very timely. So when I when I read it, I thought, ah, this sounds like an ideal topic for my first interview for 2017. So that's what we're going to be talking about. The, the title of his population is um, Segregation, the Economic Segregation, the Unacknowledged Backlash Against Dr. King. And in, the, in, that, in that publication, he goes through, uh, you know, all, all the, giving a lot of background, a lot of history, 
well researched, well presented, easy to read. He's go we're going to be discussing that tonight, and of course we're going to try to put it in a Caribbean context. But as usual, I always start the show by playing the Caricom anthem. And I'm going to do that. And while we're listening to the Caricom anthem, I'm going to be joining around by Mr. Jones Murphy. And we will be right back to start our conversation. Very exciting conversation. Very uh, looking forward. I'm looking forward to having that conversation with him. And I hope you'll be, at the end of the hour, you'll agree with me that, that we handled that really well. So let's listen to Mikkel Henderson while she's doing the Caricom anthem. And um, when we come back, we'll take a word from the sponsors and then we'll launch into our conversation with Mr. Jones Murphy on the, the backlash against Dr. King. He says it, go, it has gone widely unacknowledged. Uh, but we, um, we, you know, we all are still suffering from the, from the fallout from that. So let's listen to the character mention. distant lands our forefathers came some seeking adventure some bound in chains through battles waged and fought through victory and pain by test of their courage our freedom was gained On building one Caribbean Raise your voices high Sing of your Caribbean pride Sing it loud and strong Feel our hearts beat as one Celebrate in song As we rise to heights where we You know, there are many choices when it comes to domain registration, web hosting, and dedicated servers. But I have to tell you about Jocko Hosting. They're simply the best. With their 99.9% uptime guarantee, 24-7 sales and support teams, you'll never have to worry. Get in touch with them today. They offer plenty of other products and services like SSL certificates, managed WordPress, and more. Call or click today, 480-624-2500. Jocko.com. That's J-A-C-H-Q-O dot com. All right, so listeners, we're back. Um, some of you are saying that you are getting a hum in the, in the background. Um, while our, while our um, technicians are working on that, I guess we can, we can do our conversation. Hopefully it's not too overpowering and you can... Um, it's not too overpowering and you're able to... To, to hear us clearly while we while we try to solve the issues with the um, I think it's just an electronic pump uh, cables and stuff. But, all right, but we're back and um, with me in this on on the line is uh, Jones Murphy. Jones Murphy 
is from is from Dominica. He's a son of the soil, as we as we like to say, and um, he's been in the U.S. for a little while. He's he's, he's contributed in, in 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 several different fields. I know him from from Dominica as as a mathematician, and and that that is I guess is is he's forty. Although from reading his writings and stuff, he seemed to have expanded. His knowledge and, and his contribution is far beyond just the field of mathematics. So I wouldn't take too much more time. I'm going to give him the opportunity to tell you about himself. But let us, let us, um, welcome to this weekend interview, uh, Mr. Let's welcome this weekend interview, Mr. Jones Murphy. Jones, welcome to this weekend interview. I know it's not your first time because you've been interviewed by Thompson before. But yes. um, welcome. It's the first time that I am interviewing you on this weekend interview. Thank you, and, and greetings to your audience. It's good to meet with Dominicans. Yeah, um, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you on because I listened to a, a couple of the um, interviews that you did with Thompson, and it's always so full of information. So, I w but I will start off letting you give listeners a little background. Uh, you know, just tell them about who you are. And um, and I just introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. Um, you know, obviously from Dominica, I'm from Maho. Um, I was a Dominica Island scholar in 1981. Um, I also taught UWE scholar as well. Uh, so I was first in the Caribbean. Uh, I studied mathematics and physics. Um, I went on into Wall Street. Um, came up, you know, business executive after that. And I did a variety of financial market activities, you know, which I've been doing for over 20 years. Um, in all of the stock market, bond market, uh, currency market. And I've worked for a lot of the biggest, um, companies on Wall Street, uh, Citibank, Bank of America, AIG. And, um, so, you know, my, my, the bulk of my, but my career actually went from, I started out in scientific research at AT&T, the laboratories, but then I went on into uh, really a, a very much a Wall Street career. Um, but I started over time taking more and more interest in politics because I thought it was very much impacting what I was doing as a financial professional. And also, I've always retained my interest in science. And I also saw a lot that politics was, American politics was impacting science and impacting Dominica. You know, the issue of global warming that the islands are facing. Um, I saw that what was happening in the U.S. in particular, just as economically, you know, the, the economy under Bush hit the whole world. Um, the American policy of global warming and climate change hit everybody and hit the Caribbean particularly hard in a lot of different ways. So I started taking more and more of an interest in those things and that, that you know, that brought me to where I am right now. Um, climate change <laughs> and the politics, you say, um, in influence moved you away from, like, some people like to describe people who work on Wall Street as being in a bubble. Um, did you ever see yourself as, as that state where you were just going to work, you know, doing your contribution and, 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 and having a, a life that, um, when you, when you came out of it, you realized, wait a minute, there's, there's other ways in which you can contribute? Initially, very much so, you know. Uh, initially, uh, I literally would get into a limousine, and uh, which would take me from Manhattan to Connecticut, 
and it was I was very focused on my work. But I would hear I would hear certain things that didn't make sense to me. You know, um, we were obviously very very well paid, and I would hear people around me make complaining a lot about their taxes, and it didn't make any sense because these are people that were making millions of dollars, and I used to wonder to myself what why are they so angry? Because I remember Bill Clinton increased our tax rate from 36% to 36 to 39.6%. And these people were enraged. These are people who could go out and buy a Mercedes-Benz for cash. No problem. And, you know, I'm talking about big, making people making millions of dollars. And I used to, and I, it used to puzzle me, but, I, you know, it, it took me a long time to put all the pieces together and then to go back and understand what, American tax policy used to be and what what they were angry about with these issues. And now I have a much greater understanding than I used to. So so let's let's expand on that a little bit because actually that is one of the that's one of the areas in which you know people local people think that they can they can identify with a little more you know like you hear people say, I don't like to work overtime because when I work overtime they take all of it in taxes. Let's yes. let's let's talk about and, and also you hear people who um are not millionaires sympathize with millionaires and say but for these people how they expect to take all these people's money and, and you know um they think that um socialism they hear socialism as re- wealth redistribution, they think it's unfair. Yes. Um so let's let's just spend a little bit of time and just talk around it a little bit. As somebody who has interacted with with persons in that type of arena. Let's let's see um you know, yeah. spend a little time on it. Yes, I mean, what I realized what I found out after I investigated a lot, living both in the US and in Europe, you know, because I've spent a lot of time in various European countries. I've lived and worked in the UK, in Spain, in Italy, in France, is that the US and the Western countries and Australia and so on, you know, and Canada these countries had very, very high taxes. I started to go back historically and I realized these countries used to have very, very high taxes. And I started, I tried to understand what happened, what motivated the majority of the people to support those taxes on the rich. On the richest people, they had very high taxes. The U.S. average top tax rate on the richest Americans, the top marginal income tax rate, averaged 90% from um, Franklin Roosevelt until uh, Kennedy. And I started to wonder what, you know, what, what motivated people to be so socialistic. And I, it's very parallel in Europe. In Europe, it's even worse, actually. Denmark had a 100% marginal tax rate. So basically, if you made more than the equivalent today of about a quarter million U.S. dollars in Denmark, you had to give everything above that to the state. But the U.S. wasn't that much different. If you made more than a similar amount of money, you had to give... 90% of that to the, to, the, to the country, to the nation. So I, I started to understand that there was, there was a long period where, and particularly after World War II in Europe, where there was a lot of working class solidarity. There were very social, the people were very socialistic because the Nazis and the fascists in Europe were very right wing. And, and there was a backlash to that. And in the U.S., the backlash started even before the Nazis really. It started with Franklin Roosevelt, and the country was very socialistic. But there was a very important exception to that, which is why the socialism was so popular in the U.S. Blacks were excluded from the benefits of those programs. So blacks were excluded from the social security, too. The majority of blacks were excluded. They were excluded from the welfare programs. 
And these were white-only socialistic programs. And it was the same in Europe. European countries at that time had very racist immigration policies. Which brings us, which brings us smack dab into the topic of your, of your publication. I'm not calling it a book because by your own admission, it's not a full-fledged book. It's, um, how, how do you say it? Just, it's a, like an extended pamphlet or how do you, what would you describe it? You know, it's, it's a very, very short book that contains information that you would not say anywhere else. You know, so in terms of, of the uniqueness of the information, mm. it's, it's a book. Right? It's a book. Because so we can, we can call it a book. Okay. So yes, in those relatively few pages is information that you just will not see anywhere else because it's not discussed. And I, and I, and I agree right with you. I agree with you. The only thing I'm telling you right now, you've, ne- you've never heard any... You will listen to American radio and television. You listen to European radio and television. They will not discuss these issues at, at all. They will not talk about the fact that they had 90% tax rates for a generation. Yeah, no, nobody will, will, will believe you if you tell them that once upon a time, the wealthy people in America had yeah. no issues in paying 90% tax above a certain level of income. They would not, they would not believe that. You see Ronald Reagan, when himself was a millionaire, Ronald Reagan was already a millionaire, he was happy to pay a 90% tax because he knew none of that money was going to black people. So, so the title of your, of your book is Economic segregation, the unacknowledged backlash against Dr. King. Flesh out, unpack that title for us a little bit. Let's, yes. let's, let's, let's talk about it. Everybody is very familiar with, with physical segregation. Everybody is very familiar with the fact that in the U.S. and in the other Western countries, there, were, there was a lot of discrimination against people who were not white. You know, they were excluded. Um, immigration quotas were, were low or zero for people who were not white, in Europe in particular. In the U.S., they were also very low. People don't realize this at all. After slavery ended, immigration in the U.S. for blacks dropped to almost zero until 1965. Um, and it was the same for any other group that was not white. And even among white Europeans, there was a lot of discrimination. So you had very, very big quotas for Germans, for Scandinavians, for British people, and very low quotas for people from the Mediterranean. You know, if they were Italian or Greek or whatever, the quotas were very, very low. So it was extre- it was extremely racist. It was racist even for Europeans, you know. And then forget about anybody from anywhere else in the world. The U.S. did not accept them. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement opened up immigration in the U.S. in 1965. And what the majority of Americans did in response, they were embarrassed because they couldn't defend the policy. They were facing boycotts similar to South Africa. In the 60s, both the U.S. and South Africa were facing international boycotts. And what the U.S. did was they, ch- they did change the immigration policy, but then they also started to change their tax policies and a lot of other economic policies to preserve the inequality that was already there in the country. So, 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 so that is why you call it economic segregation, because as you said, everybody is familiar with, with the apartheid system, apartheid system in the South, where yeah. whites only conquer, whites only bathroom, whites only. Um, water and let me respond to that for a second. This is very, very important. The segregation in the U.S. was never only in the South. This is very important to understand. My father studied in mathematics. He studied classics, actually, sorry, in New York in 50s and 60s. There was heavy segregation in New York. He lived it. He experienced it. It was every bit as bad as what you saw in the South. What The difference in the North was that there were no explicit laws saying that. It, it, just, it was just how life was. 
So, and it was very terroristic. They would kill you if you moved into a white neighborhood. I mean, like, even when I moved to the U.S. in 80, this was still happening. If you were black and you walked in a white neighborhood, people would come out and kill you. Um, if you, you know, you couldn't send the schools, everything were very segregated, but nobody admitted that that was the case. So these were big open secrets that uh, nobody would talk about, but that's what how life was. So it's very important to understand Segregation was never only in the South in America. Well, that, that is that is that is very true. Um, because we, yeah. we we tend to do that almost by reflex. Talk about the South when we talk about segregation. But even yeah. in slavery, the the financing and everything of slavery was done from New York from New York finances and, and a lot of the ships in, in New Boston York was, and so on. New York abolished slavery only a generation before the South. And New York had big slavery. New York City was built by slaves. Massachusetts was physically built by slaves. The, all of the original American colonies had slavery, every single one of them. Um, and, and they gradually started abolishing slavery on, only a, two generations after um, independence. So there was a lot of slavery all across. Pennsylvania, big slavery. You know, there was a lot of slavery all across the country, north and south. The north abolished slavery before the south, but um, it was a nationwide institution. And when they abolished slavery... They continued on with very severe terroristic apartheid. Very, very bad. Right, and, and, I, and I like to use the word apartheid because we, we, we link apartheid to South Africa and then we talk about segregation in the U.S. Um, although it's the same thing in our minds because of all the publicity that apartheid gets, apartheid um, conveys a, a very different message than, than segregation. But I want to get. I want. I want to. I want to spend as much time on your book as possible. So your book is focusing on economic segregation, and yes. you you are putting forward the, the the position that economic segregation really came into full force when or to keep black people out of um, social benefit programs. Yes. What what the majority of them, and and I'm seeing it in Europe. In a big way as well. That's what Brexit is about. That's what you see these racist, um, racist parties gaining a lot of power in Europe. These parties are very similar to the Republicans. The Republican Party is first and foremost a racist party. And it's been like that since civil rights. It's become very centered on the South. Where, where the racism is actually most extreme. I mean, it, the racism is nationwide, but it is most extreme in the South. The Republican Party is centered on the South. And you see very similar things happening across the European countries. Um, the regime in Britain right now is a very racist regime, the Conservative Party there. Um, this, these are people, uh, David Cameron, who just left as the, as the Prime Minister of, of the UK, he had to issue a letter a few years ago when Nelson Mandela died, apologizing for calling Mandela a terrorist and saying that he was wrong to call Mandela a terrorist. Uh, Margaret Thatcher did that. That was Margaret Thatcher who really led that, calling Mandela a terrorist. She joined up with Ronald Reagan. They opposed um, a lot of liberation movements in third world countries. Um, these are very racist leaders. So um, the, 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 what, people, what, what these policies these developed countries are pursuing now is in response to immigration, is in response to diversity. They are moving away from their, their uh, very successful policies of the past. And they're moving into policies which are very economically unstable, they're weak. They have bad economic growth. Every time these Republicans come into power, we're seeing big economic crashes. We saw that under George W. Bush. 
I can guarantee you Donald Trump will do will, will produce another crash very similar. In Europe, the you know the British pound as soon as, soon as Brexit happened, the British pound dropped uh, 20 cents, and the economy has been very very bad ever since. So let's talk in the U.S. about some of the some of the social programs that like Social Security and your book goes talks about the benefits to the GI Bill, the benefits to veterans after the war. Let's sure. let's mention a few of the specific ones that our listeners may be familiar with. And going to how the implementation of it was designed in such a way that it was um, it was enjoyed differently by yes. by white people as from as the other groups. One one of the most troubling ones to me as an academic, as a scientist, as an intellectual myself, is the way that colleges and universities function. Um, what happened in the U.S. was that colleges and universities were explicitly for white men mostly. You know. Over 80% of the students in colleges are white men. Most of the remaining 20% were white women, but they were very limited. So Harvard did not accept women. I, I, I attended um, the California Institute of Technology, Caltech for graduate school. That Caltech fought the Civil Rights Act for eight years. So the, Martin Luther King got the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. Caltech kept fighting to stop women until 1972. And, and the arguments in all these schools were that women were not interested in mathematics and science, they were not capable of handling elite educations, and so that these programs needed to be limited to white men. While those programs were limited to white men, they were very, very popular. So people supported them. In particular, when the door was open for blacks, even most white women, even though it was a civil rights act which brought white women into these universities, most white women became Republicans at that time. They, that's when they're supporting the Republican. Most white women voted for Donald Trump. That, I was just going to make that point. Most very, white women voted for Donald Trump, yeah. Yeah, Donald Trump made some very aggressive comments against women that, that are, you know, are very unacceptable. And yet, most, most white women voted for him because they are so angry at what the Democrats did for black people 50 years ago. They're still mad about that. They're still very, very angry about it. And they vote with very sexist men to keep other, themselves and other women down, and to deny themselves birth control and things of that sort. Because white women, I guess, see their destiny very closely tied to white men, so if white men benefit, they, they can see themselves benefiting in that way. It's not even so much that, because, you know, as a woman, you know, if you, if you don't have birth control, this is a very immediate and urgent problem for you. So they know that they're suffering. You know, they know that, that bad things will happen to them. If a man is out there saying he's going to grab you, um, sexual assault is a, is a very serious, and harassment, a very serious problem for women. They know they're doing something bad for themselves. They just cannot get past their racism. And for them, their priority, they feel very sadistic, they're very cruel towards blacks, and it's more important to them to be more cruel to blacks than to take care of themselves. And this, by the way, applies to a significant proportion of people who are not white. You know, some of the Latinos, you know, you have people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and some of these people who have, may have mixed ancestries from Cuba and places like that, but they're very racist towards black people. And they will vote for Trump, even though he makes very nasty comments about other Latinos, because they feel so racist towards blacks and they're willing to endure a lot of degradation, a lot of humiliation, and a lot of discrimination if they know that blacks are getting hurt. This is a this is a big problem because it means that a lot of people are literally like psychiatrically insane 
And you can see it in, in the minority of blacks who are Republicans. You know, people like Ben Carson, Clarence Thomas, who endorsed the Confederate flag, um, who take very irrational positions because they have absorbed and internalized anti-black racism. Back to your experience on Wall Street, um, you, 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 you escape by the skin of your typical, you could have been absorbed into that world, get, get seduced by, um, by the trappings, and because that, that seems to be what the system is about: allow a few black people to come up and succeed, and, and hold them up as examples, and, um, and and help and use them to to sort of to sugarcoat um, the, the suffering of, of of other black people. So let's talk a little bit about the role that, uh, and I, and I know you want to push back a little bit on that as well because. We had the same thing when people talk about slavery and they talk about, oh, if black people had sold black people in Africa, if black people didn't sell black people, then there wouldn't be slavery. So let's talk a little bit about the role that, how, you know, some of our brothers and sisters are used in that, in that, in that, in the oppression of ourselves. Let's talk about that a little bit. Of course. Yeah. You know, even if you go back to the history of, of slavery, there is massive denial that there was a big genocide. So you have a, a, an entire continent, Africa, conquered in the same time frame as the Americas. You have widespread acceptance and acknowledgement that there was, you know, some major genocide in the Americas, that Native Americans got killed and they got conquered. You do not have the same acceptance of the same fact about Africa. But how, how did Europe come to be in possession of Africa? How did Europe come to dominate the entire continent? Well, by war, you know, and they, people, when people are attacked, in their home country, they fight. They're being raped. People are literally being stolen and shipped to another continent. Of course, people are going to fight. And there was a lot of fighting and there was a lot of war. And there is enormous silence among the Westerners uh, and whites about this. And a lot of blacks buy that story. So they believe that black people are terrible and somehow the conquest of Africa was very different from the conquest of Native America or Native Australia. It's just obvious nonsense. There were huge wars. Massive numbers of people were killed. Um, and this is one of the greatest, it, it's probably the greatest genocide of all time. And when you add in the slaughter of slavery itself, and then the, the onslaught on the African diaspora, it's, it, it, this is the greatest genocide of all time. And there is enormous silence about this in the West. Most Americans don't know at all, actually, that Africa was conquered. Um, when you tell them that, they get shocked. They, 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 they're not taught that. And a lot of blacks internalize that nonsense and believe, you know, that black people somehow victimize Europeans into slavery. <laughs> you know, no, you know, nobody in goes out of black people victimize Europeans into slavery. Yeah, <laughs> nobody invites uh, people from another continent to come and conquer them. It's, it's foolishness. The Europeans uh, hit Africa exactly the whole they hit uh, the Americas, they hit Australia, they hit India, and you know, a lot of other parts of the world. Let's spend a little bit of time on the on the role of Christianity and religion in the whole conquest of Africa and the continued subjection subjectification of um of black people in the U.S. and, and in the Caribbean. Before I, had to, I get to religion, I just want, I want to talk about my own response being on Wall Street. You know, being very isolated. I was always the only black person inside, especially when I got to the higher executive level. And my own response to that was very conditioned by the fact that I knew history. I knew my history. And so I never, ever 
questioned um, why black people weren't there because I knew why black people weren't there in those places. I knew what was going on. So I was very confident. I was very knowledgeable. And whenever I would get into political exchanges with my colleagues, I would crush them because I just knew much more than they did. And I would let them know that. For a lot of them, it was very, very painful because they were trained to regard blacks as intellectually inferior, as ignorant, and so forth. And it was a brutal experience because I would let them know in no uncertain terms that I, I was more educated than them and that they didn't understand a lot, didn't know much. Um, and so it, I never got to the point where I felt that I was one of them and, and I was accepted by them. I, I didn't trust them, you know. And as my knowledge grew about politics and things like that, I, I understood exactly what was going on and why I was so isolated. So anyway, let me let me move on to your question about religion. Religion has played a dual role, you know, in the sense that initially religion was used to wipe out African culture and wipe out black confidence. Um, but then it, it, it rebounded, you know. So you had figures like Frank Frederick Douglass during slavery, and it, you know, a long line on to Martin, up to Martin Luther King that used the Bible literally and used the words of Christ literally. And these, to me, are the most faithful people in the world to the words of Christ, in America in particular, and in the West to the words of Christ. I studied the Bible a lot um, growing up in Dominica. And then I became an atheist even before I left Dominica at a very young age. But I have a lot of respect for religious people who actually, you know, implement the words of Christ. Uh, people like Dr. King, and not these right-wingers like Donald Trump, and a lot of others who profess to be Christians, but who are very barbaric. These are very sadistic, cruel, vicious people. Very bigoted. They spend a lot of their time obsessed with degrading other people. And they put, they wrap that in Jesus Christ. I have this theory that as long as, as long as black people continue to, to embrace and pray to the God of the oppressors, they will continue to be oppressed. Um, I hear what you say about the, 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 the few spiritual leaders, Christian leaders, that, that seem to take the lead and people respond to them. But uh, what do you think about that, that, that statement? That, that part of, because I want to get into what can we do, because it seems like where we are is, is really uh, in a dire situation. What can I think that you as, can make huge, I, I, I think people can make huge tries and still remain believers in Christianity. And then I see it. You know, I knew Barack Obama when we were in our 20s. I met him when I was at Caltech and he was at Harvard. And he was, he had really started to become religious at that point. He had started dating a, dating a woman named Michelle. I met her. Um, and, you know, being Christian did not inhibit him from being very proud, very confident and unapologetically, you know, somebody of African descent. So I think that it's very possible for people to be Christian. For myself, I, it's obvious to me that, that truth cannot arrive on genocide. This is nonsense. You know, I, so even that alone invalidates Christianity to me. The conduct of the people who call themselves Christians has resulted in the worst genocide in history. Not just the worst, but the worst, the second worst, you know, the third worst. <laughs> if you go down the list, the Christians are dominant in brutality and sadism. sadism. That, that cannot be a, 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 a truth, ultimate truth for humanity. So for me, I'm an atheist and that's it. Um, but I, I have a lot of kinship with people who don't, are not informed and don't understand those points, um, but have good hearts and, and their values are right. And, you know, we can collaborate and we can work together. So I don't believe that 
it is Christianity per se at this point holding black people back. I think it's a big lack of information on the points that I spelled out before, a lack of understanding of all the different forces that have been arrayed against us in countries like Dominica and here in the richest countries in the world, in the United States and in Europe, um, the bad behavior of a lot of people towards black people, very bad behavior, horrific. You know, Donald Trump is president of the United States after 70 years, a lifetime of 70 years of criminal behavior, racism, housing discrimination, oh, butchering thousands of families that were looking for homes. He was forcing them into homelessness when they were, you know, young families looking for a place to live. He was discriminating, committing crimes, breaking the law, um, just very bad behavior. Hello. Well, I was saying, I was saying that as you mentioned Donald Trump, okay. Yes. I, 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 I want us to spend a little bit of time on the significance and the symbolism of the election of Donald Trump, and the fact that he, it seems like he could do no wrong, he could say no wrong. Um, he was going to get he got elected anyway. What, what is the symbolism of that in the context in which we are, we are talking about? Donald Trump's victory um, is part of a pattern that goes back to Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was elected immediately after civil rights. And the way Nixon was elected, well, he specifically uh, appealed to anger at the legacy of Martin Luther King. You know, immediately after Martin Luther King was shot, shot um, Nixon went around, he started, he, he centered his appeal in the South and in the most racist parts of the country. But all over the country, what Nixon did was appeal to anger and resentment of the upliftment of blacks. And in the U.S., the majority of whites are unrepentant racists. They have not changed. They're very covert. They're very dishonest about this. They're very deceitful. But their behavior is very consistent. And their voting is very consistent. The last year in which a majority of white Americans has ever voted for a Democrat was 1964. That happens to be the exact same year in which the Civil Rights Act was passed. Ever since that year, a majority of whites stopped voting for Democrats. They have never voted for Democratic again. They're very angry. And they lie nonstop about their reasons for doing so. And what Trump did was he spent eight years, the last eight years, saying that Obama is an illegal immigrant. That's, that, was, that was Trump's campaign. That was 99% of his campaign. He didn't talk about any other issue. He didn't start to talk about Mexicans and Muslims until this last year. So for eight years, all he was saying was basically saying the N-word you know, in a, in a different form. And this attracted a huge audience and it made Trump very, very popular. So to me, Trump is very much in in a package with Nixon, with Reagan, you know, with George W. Bush and so on. These people are very, very racist. They're very dishonest. And the people who vote for them lie nonstop about the reasons why they prefer this politician. If you ask them what the reasons are, they will never tell you the truth. They don't tell you the truth. They don't say, well, you know, Obama is an illegal immigrant. A lot of them will not say it. But they love that kind of stuff. Love it. So, so what is what should be the response of of black people to the whole situation um, as it exists, especially with with Trump and the people that he appointed and the, the policies that we can expect from him? And I, I want to take all this question to the Caribbean as well. What the yeah. people in the Caribbean, um, because the. the African Americans were in a system where laws were passed and there were structures put in place to obstruct them. 
we in the Caribbean, uh, quote unquote, have been self-governing for a while now. We seem not to be able to to pull ahead. As a matter of fact, we're we most likely behind uh, than the Black Americans. Even though we had the benefit of, of history that most Black Americans would not have had in school, how do we how do we go about um, getting out of that out of that situation? I mean, firstly, I would tackle the the, the harder problem, which is the uh, the Americans. You know, um, for African Americans, voting turnout went down uh, last year compared with 2008 and 2012 when Obama was running. Black Americans made a horrible mistake. A lot of them stayed home. They did. They didn't have a sense of urgency, even though they were confronted with Donald Trump. A lot of them bought into various kinds of leftist perfectionism criticisms of Hillary Clinton that she wasn't Obama. Yeah, she wasn't Obama, but she was a lot better than Donald Trump. And, and a lot of them were very impractical and and stayed home. And that critical drop in black turnout elected Donald Trump. If blacks had turned out at the same rate for Hillary, as they had for Obama, Trump could not win. So when they stayed home, they shot themselves in in the foot for the next four years, and and they're going to have four painful years to understand. They need to show up and vote because the racists will show up and vote. These people vote at the highest rate because they're very angry, they're desperate, they're very cruel, and they're out to hurt you. So you know you, you cannot sit down and say Hillary is not perfect. You don't have perfection is not on the table. So when you know when you have a choice like that, you have to step up and you have to act, and black people did not do it. The next opportunity will come in 2018 in the midterm elections in the U.S., so let's see what they do. Um, as far as the Caribbean goes, um, there's a great acceptance of of corruption, um, and there's an enormous willful ignorance when you have overwhelming evidence of bad behavior by governors. And, and we have to stop this in the Caribbean and punish leaders. People have to run for office. These are very small populations. It's very easy to make change. There's no excuse for what we see in the Caribbean. It's, it's very small population. And, and what I see with my, my own family, you know, loved ones. I'm not talking about people I don't know or people that I hate. These are people I love. They're very willfully ignorant. I will give them overwhelming evidence of corruption. And they will just continue to support it. So, I mean, at the end of the day, a nation gets the leaders that it deserves. You know, especially a democracy where people have a chance to see and understand facts. And I'm very disappointed in a lot of my family. I'm very disappointed in a lot of my friends. Um, and their behavior has resulted in disgrace for the country and, and a lack of progress that, and a loss of opportunity that could have been had. So where where does it start? Does it start with the education system? Does it start it from movement? Um, what what? How do we go forward? I mean, you say people have to run for office, but we see what happens to folks who even venture to speak. It's like you, you put your head up to speak, and somebody's waiting with a sledgehammer to, to to knock you in your head. Uh, yes, I mean people who, who tell the truth are victimized, and you know I'm just not sure because. People close to me are a part and parcel of this bad behavior. You know, people that are very close to me that I, you know, have long-standing ties to. I talk to them. I show them facts. I show them overwhelming information, and then they go out and they support very ugly people doing terrible things to the country. So uh, I don't know what to make of that. I, I'm not sure 
ultimately, the country cannot have more ethical leadership than the majority of its people. So the ethical level in Dominica and in other Caribbean countries has to rise for there to be progress. You know, people have to reflect, they have to feel shame. And, you know, I'm hopeful that what goes on in, you know, in social media and just the highlighting of really ridiculous bad behavior starts to take a toll at some point. And people are accepting plane tickets to go back and fly back and vote for corruption. And, you know, it's not just people in living in America, people living outside are going back and voting to stagnate the country and mess up the country. And they don't have to deal with the consequences of what they're voting for. I, 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 I agree with you on a lot of those points. I, I was very disgusted with, with, with Dominica in the by-election that they had recently in the Sufria constituency. I mean, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. But when a minister is forced to resign from his seat and he's allowed to be on the pulpit on, on the podium or, or whatever it is, campaigning for his replacement, and that replacement gets more votes than in the previous election. And when people are standing on the on the pulpit and calling him a hero and a real man, and and there's no backlash from the from the from the populace about that, that says a lot. And and, and you made a statement that says that your leaders cannot be any more ethical than than the people. The leaders come out of the people. So, where can we get that shame? You say that there has to be people have to feel have to feel shame for you to for you to be able to say, well, okay, this behavior is not acceptable because, or, or people say this person is putting us to shame. We we saw the recent backlash against the leader of the opposition because he appeared on a on a program talking about the economic leadership program, and even up to death threats. I think we have a major, a major challenge in the um, in the Caribbean to try to pull ourselves out of the mess that we're in. I think there are a couple of different factors that that you know make me optimistic in the long term. In the sense that you know we've had some very bad situations in Dominica in the past. I remember you know it, there was a point where Patrick John seemed invincible. I mean the guy had overwhelming power. One of my classmates was shot on the 29th of May. You know, we couldn't we couldn't do anything. We were just paralyzed. We couldn't do anything against this regime that was very, very that just lost its mind and just gone crazy. And I remember, you know, I came up to that point. I had mostly been a labor supporter until a few years before the 29th of May. Then I switched and I started supporting, you know, Miss Charles and the Freedom Party. And but it was hopeless at that point. It just felt very hopeless. You know, the Labour Party was just overwhelming. They were winning every election. It just didn't seem like there was any way to get PJ out. But he got out. He was gotten out. And that's going to happen to the bad behavior, the bad actors in Dominica too. They will, they will be gotten out. They are not immortal. They will die or, you know, something will happen and progress will happen. So that fundamentally makes me more optimistic. Second thing is that there is a big group of people who are, are Dominicans now who are increasingly connected to Dominica and aggregating and adding up our voices via social media and internet and things like that. Constantly, just on a constant basis. And we cannot be victimized, we cannot be shut up, and we speak up. And this is very painful for the government. You know, the 60-minute show was very painful. They're feeling shame, they're feeling the pressure, they're feeling the heat. And that's why they're turning on Lennox Linton and they're getting mad because 
pressure on them from outside, you, you know, aid donors, people wanting to do business, potential investors are looking at them, asking them, what, you know, what the hell is going on? And it's the same in the U.S. with Donald Trump. You know, his demand is very unpopular internationally. Pressure on the U.S. internationally is tremendous. The U.S. dollar is suffering. Um, and so these things do matter in the end. After, after a while, Bush was, and it was very unpopular, very low approval ratings, and that's what, how Obama was elected. So after Trump, it's very possible that we will get somebody even better than Obama in the next, you know, election. So it's painful while you're going through it, but ultimately, as Dr. King said, the arc of the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We have about five minutes left. Um, let's let's get back to your book, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to to give people uh, a synopsis, a rationale for what is discussed in the book, and you can go ahead and tell them where they can get copies. And uh, maybe we can we can do another session on the book, but this time, if more people who haven't read it, we can maybe do a call-in program where people can you know have a discussion where we continue it on, on social media. But let's come back to your book. It's entitled yeah. Economic Segregation. Economic Segregation, the unacknowledged backlash against Dr. King. Let's, let's, let's I, th- I thought a lot about how to write that book, and I wrote the book very short because I, do, I know people have a lot of alternatives and entertainment. They got TV and sports and so on competing for their attention. So I made this book very short, but I can guarantee you, you will see things in that book that you will never, you have never seen before, never heard before. You will see facts put together that will make you understand the election of Donald Trump, Brexit, and a lot of other things that are going on in the world, in the bigger economies of the world today. So the book is intended to give you an understanding of why these rich countries are adopting these very bizarre leaders and these very racist parties. Why are they so popular? And then to understand, now you have to expose these things. You have to educate people around you and name and shame the bad actors, you know, which is the same solution that we need in the Caribbean. Name and shame the bad actors, expose their motivations and their bad behavior, and then move on to a brighter future. And of course, we, we also would like to spend some time highlighting some of the more successful economies, um, you know, you have Norway, you have Sweden, the Scandinavian countries seem, although they have the advantage of um, homogeneity, um, you know, all the most of the people look the same, so there's less challenge um, to, to be generous to people that don't look like each other. But at the same time, I think there are lessons that can be learned. So, so you know, we're almost at the end of the hour, so. I would, I will, I want to make an open invitation that maybe you can come back one of these days and we can talk about you know, examples of where, where in the world the systems that we're saying can work, where they are working, where they have worked, how they can be applied to our people, our governments in the Caribbean and so on. Yes, I'd be more than happy to return to do that. The, the question of what set of public policies has worked best is a very settled question. There is no mystery. We can see which group of economic policies have worked best over the long run. People are not implementing those policies, deliberately not implementing those policies, because they don't want to see them benefit people they hate. And you've seen this in Scandinavia now. As Scandinavia has diversified, their politics is moving to the right, just like the U.S., just like France and Britain and so forth. 
Um, and so this is a, a very toxic trend and in the bigger economies that we have to arrest and we have to expose it. And I'll be more than happy to come to come back and talk to you in more depth about that. Well, certainly. And I think tonight we had a very uh, you know, deep conversation, deep but still at the same time straightforward. The, the points were, were well made. I think most, most of our listeners uh, gained some information. They, you, know, you opened it up with the, the fact that there was a time when wealthy people did not mind paying taxes because they they were they were very honest about the use of taxes. You know, you see businesses complain about not wanting to pay people a living wage. They they complain against a minimum you know a minimum wage that, that can allow somebody to feed a family. And and you listen to people justify that and say, well if it's too expensive then the businesses will shut down. But if you are if you have to run a business at slave wages then you need to shut down I think. Um, so, so I, I, I really encourage listeners to, to, to get a copy of, of your book and, and to read it and, and to discuss it with their friends, discuss it with their family. Like you said, there, there are so many people who, in other aspects of their lives, they are, they are knowledgeable, they're intelligent, they're intellectual, but when it comes to their politics, they seem to, to refuse to think. And so, you know, maybe education in other realms they can they can see their eyes can be open from a different angle. So so as usual, I you know I want to thank you for for sharing your thoughts and for sharing your thinking and putting and being brave enough to put it out there for for everybody to be able to participate and to and to interact and to react. And and I and I wish you all the best, um, Jones. And as I said, uh, we we are going to have you back. Let's continue the economic discussions. Let's continue discussing what type of solution and what type of path that we can that we can pave to, to, to see our people have a better a better quality of life. Um, you know, on, on, on a whole, on average, on a whole have a better quality of life. Thank you very much and I look forward to that. All right. Thank you so much man and, 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 and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us tonight. Good night. All right, good night. Listeners, there you had it. I, I told you we we're going to have a very um, interesting conversation tonight. I, I hope you agree with me that our conversation was was enlightening, was informative. We we hit on a lot of topics, was very broad, but I think it was at a level where we could all um, participate and 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 get put food for thought. And uh, we would, you know, in this day and age, maybe what we can do is put our heads down for the next few years. And educate each other, but you have to vote. That's 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 the long and short of it. We have to vote, and we have to get our thinking straight. Uh, no matter what you think about Hillary and Donald, the choice seemed to have been an easy one to make, and, and we made the wrong one. Maybe it was not so easy to make. But but the two years coming, hopefully it, before that time, these guys will have shown their hands sufficiently. They've already started showing their hands total disregard for for the protests that's going on around the pipe the pipelines, the, the North Dakota pipeline, the Excel pipeline, they, you know, they they signed out of the um, Trans Pacific partnership. I mean that's that's a treaty I had some concerns with, but but definitely we we're going to see um, people diving in with their bags in their hand and trying to who can fill their bags the fastest. So hopefully that will wake enough of our people up so that we can go out and vote 
and, and take, at least take back the Congress, if not both houses of Congress, either the Senate or the House. You can, you can take back one of those and start putting some checks and balances on these guys. But uh, this has been This Week in Interview. I'm your host, Anthony Drago. This Week in Interview is a TDN Radio production. You can find podcasts of our show uh, if you go onto our website, tdnradio.net. You can find our podcast in our archives, that way you can you can replay all the interviews that we do at your leisure. You can also download the TDN Radio app on your iPhone or your Android phone. Those apps are available. So I want to say thank you for listening. I hope that if tonight was your first night that you enjoyed the show and that you will join us every Wednesday night for for this weekend interview. I want to give a special shout out to the people who are listening um, from us, on us through um, via Dominica political page. Uh, we're hoping that we can do some collaboration with them. There's a lot of discussion going on on the Dominica political page, and the more of us that can go there and take the conversation to a to a level that seeks solutions, let's try to do that. So until next Wednesday, I wish you all the best. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the, the rest of the week, and um, happy. 2017 to you, uh, and, and I'll see you next week, Wednesday. This has been your first episode of this weekend interview for 2017. <laughs>